All right, good morning. It's good to see you this morning on this holiday weekend. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 1. If you're new with us this morning, or perhaps it's been a few weeks since you've been with us, we started a series here recently on the book of James. Here at Fremont Free, we like to take the books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. The reason we do that is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. We really do believe this book is the Word of God, and as such, our goal every Sunday is to give you as much opportunity as possible to hear from Him in His Word. So this morning, that means we're in James 1, verses 9 to 11. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we want to pause here and just ask for your help as we turn our attention to your word. Lord, please speak loudly and clearly to us this morning. In the midst of life's distractions, in the midst of life's anxieties, in the midst of any concerns that we may have, we just pray that you would minister to us this morning, that your word would challenge us and confront us, encourage us, spur us on. Lord, we're just asking that you be gracious to us, that your spirit would be at work amongst our church body this morning. Please, God, for the sake of your glory and for our joy, speak to us from James chapter 1. It's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen. Well, things are not always as they seem. In fact, sometimes our brain tricks us to see things that are not there or to distort reality in such a way that it just doesn't line up with what's actually true. For example, consider three famous optical illusions. The first is known as the Ebinghaus illusion, which I'm going to have Nora throw on the screen here. This particular illusion, the orange circle on the right, appears to be larger than the orange circle on the left. But in reality, they're actually the exact same size. The illusion occurs because our brain uses context to judge size. And since the circle on the right is surrounded by smaller circles, our brain assumes that the circle must be larger Then the one on the left is surrounded by much larger circles. But again, they're actually the same size. A similar phenomenon occurs in an illusion known as the checker shadow illusion. This is the second one. In this particular illusion, the question is, which checkerboard square is darker, A or B? You can see up there, A up towards the left, and then B more in the middle. The question is, which of those two is the darker one? Now, if you're like most people, your answer is, obviously, it's A. But in reality, both A and B are the exact same color. The illusion comes from the way in which our brain perceives shadows. One final illusion, the final illusion is known as the Muller-Lyer illusion. This one is particularly tricky because not only does it seem like all three lines are different lengths, but they also look to be a little bit offset. But again, as you might expect by now, all three lines are indeed the exact same length and they start and end on the same axis. It's the orientation of the arrows that confuses our brain and makes us think that the lines are of different length and they start at different places. All that to say is all three of these illusions demonstrate things are not always as they seem. Sometimes we see things that just aren't there, or we distort reality in a way that just doesn't line up with what's actually true. And as much as that's the case on an optical level, I would argue that we do the exact same thing on a spiritual level. We get focused on the wrong things. We lose sight of the big picture, and in doing so, we distort reality and we lose sight of what's actually true. And this seems to be the concern of James in our passage today. In James 1, verses 9 to 11, James is concerned that we would perceive reality correctly. More specifically, he has a concern that we'll be distracted by material goods and material wealth and material possessions to the point that we lose sight of what actually matters in the end, that we lose sight of what's actually true. As James will remind us in verses 9 to 11, our true significance and value does not come from our material status or our wealth, but rather our true significance and value comes from our spiritual condition before God. Primarily, do we know Jesus Christ? But the challenge is that we don't always see it that way. 
as it was the case with each of the optical illusions I put on the screen here just a few seconds ago, we trick ourselves into seeing things that just don't line up with reality. And so the challenge this morning is to then see correctly. It's to reorient our gaze so that we can see things as they actually are, not an illusion. So James 1, verses 9 to 11, if you would, please stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Just three verses this morning. James 1, verses 9 to 11. Words are on the screen here. You can follow them that way. You can look along in your own Bibles, or you can just listen as I read. But three verses in James chapter 1. The Word of God says this, beginning in verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's the word of God you may be seated. Now, one of James' particular concerns in the book of James is related to the way that we think about money and wealth and possessions. Clearly, the recipients of his letter must have been dealing with issues related to wealth or lack thereof, because at multiple points throughout the letter, James broaches the topic of money and wealth and possessions. And in saying that, here's where we have to be honest. James' willingness to talk about money and wealth and riches is probably going to make some of us a little bit uncomfortable. There are certain topics that we feel comfortable talking about, even in church, and others that make us squirm a little bit. Money and wealth and possessions seem to fall into the squirm category. We can talk about some things all day, like weather. We like to talk about our kids, and in Nebraska, Husker football is a pretty safe topic too. But the minute someone brings up finances or wealth or possessions, particularly our wealth, our finances, our possessions, we tend to get a little bit anxious. But apparently, James had no such anxiety, because in at least four of the five chapters of this book, James directly addresses the topic of money and wealth and possessions. I think you could make a strong argument that he addresses the topic indirectly in the other chapter. And so whatever qualms we may have in talking about money and possessions, particularly in the context of our spirituality, James has no such qualms. And for the record, Jesus did not have any qualms like that either. Jesus frequently and regularly talked about money and wealth and possessions in the part and the context of a larger discussion about the kingdom of God. So listen, if talking about money or wealth or possessions makes you uncomfortable, then I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, you better buckle up for the book of James because he talks about it regularly. And for that matter, so does the New Testament. But here's the thing, and maybe this will put you at ease. James doesn't address this topic because he's trying to make us feel bad or because he's trying to guilt us into having some sort of shame. Rather, I think what he's trying to do throughout the book of James, and in particular also in our passage today, is he's trying to reorient us to think correctly about money and wealth and possessions. He wants us to see the world rightly and think about our possessions and our wealth in a way that lines up with reality. I think that's exactly what he's doing in verses 9 to 11 this morning. The main thing that I think James wants us to take away from this passage today is simply this. True significance does not come from material possessions or wealth, but rather it comes from our spiritual condition before God. And thus the application of James 1 verses 9 to 11 is to reorient our thinking so that we start to evaluate our significance on the basis of our spiritual condition before God rather than evaluating our significance on the basis of our material status. And to point us in this direction in terms of both his thesis and application, James reminds us of three key truths in verses 9 to 11. The first key truth is simply this. Our life on earth is temporary and it fades away quickly. 
Look at verses 9 to 11. The focus will be on verses 10 to 11, but I think verse 9 gives us some context. Verse 9 says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now over the years there's been plenty of debate as to whom James is actually addressing in verses 10 and 11. Clearly in verse 9 is evidenced by the language of brother. James is addressing Christians who are in a humble state. Those who are lacking money or possessions or influence. But in verses 10 to 11, the question is, is he still addressing Christians? Because the word brother disappears. Are the rich in verses 10 to 11 then Christians brother, Christian brothers and sisters? Or are we talking about rich non-believers here? For a variety of reasons related to the context and language of verses 10 to 11, I think he's still addressing Christians in verses 10 and 11. He's addressing rich Christians. But either way, I think the main principle, whether you think he's addressing Christian or non-Christians, is still the same. Obviously, James wants to remind the rich that their life is fleeting, and therefore so are their riches. And to make that point, James uses an illustration from nature. He compares the rich to a flower in the field, which is here one day and then gone the next. It's an illustration that is straightforward, one that's easy to follow, and I think one that most of us can relate to. I know it's one I can relate to. We have a medium-sized tree right next to our driveway. And other than the fact that sometimes the tree branches can get a little bit long and play havoc on our basketball shots, we love that tree. It provides some needed shade, and when it blossoms in the spring, it is stunningly beautiful. Now, it could just be my faulty memory, but at least in my recollection, Tanya has the same recollection, some years this tree blossoms pink, and some years it blossoms white. This year was a white year, and as is the case every time it blooms, it was indeed beautiful. But here's the thing, the blooms on this particular, tre- this particular tree only last a few days. The flowers wilt and fall off after just a few hours, it would seem, and the tree goes back to just being a normal tree. And if you're a fan of flowering trees, that reality has to be a little bit depressing, right? The flowers are here for a few days, and then they're gone in an instant. This is the point of James' illustration. He's using the illustration of the flower to say, this is what our life on earth is like. Just as the flower is here today and gone tomorrow, so it will be with us. One day we'll be here, and the next day we're gone and forgotten. My grandmother, Gertrude Huntsmeyer, was born in 1908 on her parents' farm in Ludlow Township near Waukon, Iowa. She lived on a farm nearly all of her life, and as legend would have it, she could apparently outwork nearly any man on a farm. She had five children. She was very involved in her local church. And near and dear to my heart, she also made incredible potato pancakes, which was very important for me as a young kid. She lived a long and fruitful life, dying in 1996 at the age of 87. But here's the thing. I doubt that any of you have heard of my grandmother. She wasn't famous. She didn't accomplish anything particularly noteworthy. She lived in a normal house on a normal farm and had a mostly normal family, mostly normal. She was born in relative obscurity. She died in relative obscurity. Like the flower in the field, she blossomed. But then the scope of history, and in fact, the further we get away from 1996, the more obvious this becomes. History and history, she faded away quickly. James' point here is that all of us are just like that. We are like the flowers in the field. Even if you were famous, even if you were extraordinarily wealthy, even if you did have amazing accomplishments, you too will die and be forgotten. Can anyone in this room name the most famous scientist from the 800s? Could anyone in this room name the wealthiest person who's currently living in Indonesia? 
Does anyone name the, know the name of the most beautiful woman who lived in the Roman Empire? The answer to all those questions is probably no. And even if you did know the name of any of those people, what difference would it make? Those people have long since died or will soon die, and all of their accomplishments and wealth and beauty passed away with them. Our time on earth is short. We are like the flower in the field. And in the context of James 1, the obvious implication of that reality is that it makes no sense to live for wealth and riches that will not last. It makes no sense to live for those things if our time on earth is so transitory. To measure our significance on the basis of our material status is incredibly foolish and short-sighted because our time on this earth is short and our possessions mean nothing in the scope of eternity. And that actually brings us to the second key truth of the passage. The second key truth being this, that eternity is coming. Now the language of verse 9 is interesting. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Boasting is a word that certainly can have negative connotations. We don't like the guy or the gal who boasts in his or her accomplishments. The type of person who goes around saying, well, back in third grade, I was the best athlete in all of elementary school. Well, great. Good for you. But even scripture would condemn that type of boasting also. But boasting can have a positive connotation if we're boasting in something outside of ourselves. For example, as we saw in Jeremiah chapter 9, the passage that Seth read earlier, to boast in knowing the Lord is a good thing. If by boasting in the Lord we mean that we are rejoicing and glorifying in God and what he's done and what he can do and what we cannot do. And I certainly think that's the type of boasting that James has in mind here in James chapter 1. That said, it still raises the question in verse 9. What type of exaltation is possible for a brother or sister in lowly circumstances? In other words, what exaltation is there for a person of limited resources and influence? Obviously, the answer to that question must have nothing to do with worldly boasting, as the person in a lowly condition has no earthly means to boast. So instead, the exaltation that James must be talking about here must be a spiritual one. And in light of what we read in the rest of the book of James and in the New Testament, I think we can say this, the type of exaltation he has in mind here is the type of exaltation that comes from knowing Jesus. To know Jesus and have a relationship with Christ through faith is to be exalted in the sense that we now belong to his family, that we've been adopted by him. We are a part of what he's doing. But to know Jesus and have a relationship with him is also to recognize our true exaltation is still to come. It will come when Christ returns and we reign with him forever. And so this exaltation has both an already and a not yet component. An already component in that we already belong to Christ and thus we can exalt. We know Jesus but a not yet component in that we're waiting for the day when Jesus returns and will reign with him forever. Maybe to put it in tangible terms, our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are in lowly positions can certainly boast today that they know Jesus. And because of that, they can have joy even now in the midst of their lowly circumstances. In fact, one of the consistent testimonies from the mission field is that oftentimes it's our brothers and sisters in Christ who have the least in terms of possessions, in terms of influence, that are filled with the most joy. But perhaps one of the reasons they can have this joy is because of the not yet. It's because they understand that future exaltation awaits. When Christ returns, those who know Christ will spend eternity with him, and they will reign with him forever, and they will experience the joy and the blessing and the full riches of being with Jesus Christ. Or to say more simply, they may be in humble circumstances now, but because of their faith in Jesus Christ, the day of exaltation is coming. And that reality of eternity that's coming changes the entire equation of how we are to live now. 
Listen, if there is no eternity coming, then by all means, you should do everything possible to live it up now. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Go ahead. If there is no eternity, then accumulate as many possessions as you can. Try to accumulate as much wealth as you can. But if there is eternity, and if true treasure is not found here but in the world to come, then it seems that accumulating wealth and possessions here to the exclusion of storing up treasure in heaven is actually a really bad idea. Earlier this week, it was reported that Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, is reported that his super yacht was finally ready to sail. Bezos had commissioned the building of the yacht a few years back, but now it's finally ready for him to hit the open waters. At 417 feet long, the super yacht is thought to be the world's largest sailing yacht, and at a cost of $500 million, it's almost certainly one of the, if not the most expensive yacht ever built. It also has a 206-foot support boat, by the way, to carry any toys that Bezos might need, toys like supercars, smaller boats, seaplanes, helicopters, and the like. Now, for most people, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess most people in this room, $500 million seems a bit extravagant for a boat. But, I'll say this, when your net worth is estimated to be $140 billion, as is the case with Bezos, $500 million probably seems like a drop in the bucket. And here's the thing. If this world is all that there is, why shouldn't Jeff Bezos live it up? Why shouldn't he flaunt his wealth? If anything, he should probably be more extravagant in his pursuits. Why not build two super yachts? Why not build a billion-dollar yacht or a two-billion-dollar house? What difference does it make? Unless, of course, this world is not all that there is. If eternity is real, and if the judgment of God awaits, and if the greatest treasure is still to come, and that treasure is not an earthly one, but a heavenly one that consists of delighting forever in the presence of our Creator, if that is real, then storing up treasure on earth makes no sense. The reason why James tells the lowly brother to boast in his exaltation is because the future exaltation of those who are in Christ is real. To use the language of the Psalms, it's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than it is to be a king on this earth with all the treasures of the world at our disposal. There is a great reversal coming in which those who have humbled themselves under Christ will be exalted. On the other hand, those who have exalted themselves above Christ will be humbled. Just because things look a certain way now does not mean that they will always stay that way because eternity is coming. Which brings us to the third and final key truth from the passage, that things are not always as they seem. Listen again to the language of verses 9 and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Again, I think James is addressing Christians in both verses 9 and 10. To the lowly brother, he encourages the lowly brother to remember his exalted state as one who belongs in Christ. To the rich brother, he encourages him to remember his lowly state and that he's completely and totally dependent upon Christ in every way. In other words, he reminds both the lowly brother and the rich brother, things are not as they seem. Lowly brother, just because you live in humble circumstances does not mean that you've been neglected or abandoned or forgotten by God. Rich brother, just because you live in plentiful circumstances does not mean that you've done anything special or that you deserve your current circumstances. As James will remind us in next week's passage, every good gift we have comes from God. So if we have anything now, it's only because he's given it to us. So for both the rich and the lowly brother, there's a need to see the world differently. That's what James is saying in verses 9 and 10. 
Listen, all of us in this room have a tendency to live in the here and now and assume that just because we see something with our eyes, it must be true. The rich must be blessed because it seems like God's favors on them. The poor, on the other hand, must be cursed since they live in lowly conditions. But as James makes abundantly clear in this passage, things are not always as they seem. Yes, followers of Christ may face difficulty now, but that does not mean that God has forgotten them. On the other hand, followers of Christ may experience blessing now, but it's not because of anything they did. There's more at work than what we can see with our eyes, which is why James encourages the lowly brother, boast in your exaltation, and the rich brother to boast in his humiliation. He wants them both to recognize things are not as they seem. And he wants both of them to focus on spiritual realities that are never changing, rather than on material realities that are fleeting and can change in an instant. As we suggested earlier, in this passage, James is pleading with both the lowly brother and the rich brother to realize their true significance does not come from their material possessions or their wealth. Rather, their true significance comes from knowing Jesus Christ. He's beseeching his brothers and sisters in Christ to look beyond their material circumstances and instead focus on their spiritual condition. Because our life on this earth fades quickly. Eternity is coming and things are not as they seem. Both the rich and the poor alike are to focus on their spiritual condition rather than their material status. And that brings us then back to the clear application of James, verses, James chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. We need to reorient our thinking so that we start to evaluate our lives and our significance in light of our spiritual condition rather than in light of our material status. I have a friend from Iowa who's been highly successful in the business world. Out of college, he immediately rose up the corporate ladder as a thriving salesperson for a multi-billion dollar company. He then parlayed that money into buying several of his own businesses, which he then parlayed into buying several more businesses, and the profits continued to roll in, and up and up and up he went. I have no idea what he's worth today, but he doesn't lack any resources. He seems to be able to do whatever he wants whenever he wants to do it. Conversely, I have another friend who spent most of his life working in factories and low-paying jobs. He lives in a small house and doesn't drive a fancy car. I don't think he has an Instagram account, and if he did, there wouldn't be much to post anyway, at least nothing that would make others jealous or envious. Yet, it's pretty clear that this second friend of mine dearly loves Jesus, like a lot. He's generous with his money. He regularly talks with others about the good news of Christ. And so my question for you is simply this. Which of my two friends has been more successful? Now, from the world's perspective, the answer is obvious, right? It's the first guy. It's clear. Now, because we're in church, because we've been reading this passage, you probably know we should say the second guy. But if we're honest, if we're honest, I'm not sure how many of us actually believe that deep down. Now, hear me clearly because I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not in the least trying to suggest that poverty and spiritual maturity always go hand in hand, or that riches and spiritual emptiness go hand in hand. I've known plenty of people in lowly circumstances who have zero spiritual depth. I've known plenty of people with great material resources who love Jesus and want to make him known to others. So I'm not suggesting at all that poor equals good and rich equals bad, nor do I think James is suggesting that. What I am saying, though, and what, more importantly, what I think James is saying is that our spiritual condition is infinitely more important than our material status. And so my point in comparing my two friends is simply to say this, it's better to know and love Jesus than it is to have all the riches in the world. Now again, don't misunderstand me. It's possible to have riches and know Jesus, or it's possible to be poor and spiritually blind. The point here in James 1 is not that wealth in and of itself is a bad thing or a good thing. 
The point is the true significance does not come from our material possessions or our wealth, but rather true significance comes from knowing Jesus Christ. And therefore, we need to reorient our thinking so that we start to evaluate ourselves in light of that truth. That we start to evaluate ourselves by our spiritual condition rather than our material status. But here's the thing. This is much more difficult to do in reality than it is in theory. Because the truth of the matter is that earthly treasure is actually really attractive. In his commentary on the book of James, Bible scholar Craig Blomberg asked this question in light of this passage. He says this, How many of us have fallen so in love with this world that if we knew we were to die tonight, we would experience genuine sorrow because of missed opportunities for various earthly pleasures? That question stings a little bit, at least it does for me, because if I'm honest, if I were to find out I was going to die tonight, I think I probably would experience a little bit of sorrow thinking about the things that I'm missing out on. Right? Sometimes I hear about vacations or trips or experiences that people have, I feel a little bit jealous. And no doubt, given some of the things I've got to experience in my life, some would hear about things that I've done and they would probably feel the same way. And hear me, again, I don't want to be misunderstood here, there's nothing wrong with going on a good trip. There's nothing wrong with having a great experience or eating a really good piece of steak or enjoying a great slice of cheesecake. Those are great things. As we talked about in the book of Genesis, God's creation is meant to be enjoyed. So I'm not saying, oh, don't ever go on vacation. Just live in a cave. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is this. If we're measuring our satisfaction and our value by our material possessions rather than by our spiritual condition before God, something is seriously wrong. Listen, I would love one day to see the Great Barrier Reef or to hike in the Swiss Alps or to eat pasta in Italy. Those would be amazing things. But if they never happen, it will be okay. My value and significance does not come from my material possessions or wealth or the things that I experience materially on this earth. My significance comes from my relationship with God. I've been rescued from my sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb The Holy Spirit lives in me. I've been adopted into his family. And one day I will reign with Christ forever. That's where my value comes from. And in the meantime, day by day, as I'm waiting for the return of Christ, I'm hopefully growing in Christian maturity, which, by the way, is infinitely, and I mean this, it is infinitely more valuable than having a billion dollars in my bank account. To grow in Christ is far better than having all the riches in the world. And this is the reality that we are meant to focus on as followers of Christ. True significance does not come from our material possessions or wealth. Rather, it comes from knowing Jesus. And so we need to reorient our thinking to reflect that reality. But I would also suggest that we need to reorient our living to reflect this reality. Here's a question for you. On a week-to-week basis, is your greatest priority, not just in theory, but in reality, growth in your relationship with Christ? Or is it something else? For those of us who claim to know Jesus, I think we know that our relationship with Christ should trump everything else. But are we actually living this way? Listen, if you're sacrificing growth in your relationship with Christ to pursue some more money at work, or to live in a little nicer house, or to drive a better car, or to see your kids be more successful in sports or activities, or to accomplish more earthly things, then I would just humbly suggest that you've lost sight of true reality. You've been tricked by an illusion. The reality is that our life on Christ is the most important thing about us. To quote an old missionary, 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Our value does not come from our bank account. Our value does not come from our business ledger. Our value does not come from our ACT score or GPA. For that matter, our significance is not measured by how nice our house is or how many vacations we've gone on or how many people know us in the community. Our significance comes primarily, and I would argue in the end, even solely from our relationship with Jesus Christ. So church, I think one of the ways that we respond to this passage is to prioritize our relationship with God above everything else. If you don't know Christ, and in a room this size, there are many here who do not know Christ. If that's you, then you owe it to yourself to investigate the claims of Jesus. Was he really and is he really the Son of God? Did Jesus really die on the cross for our sins? Did he really raise from the dead? If so, and with all my heart, I believe the answer to those questions is yes. If that is the case, then you should turn today from your sin, repent and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And if you already know him, then perhaps you need to reevaluate what is my actual greatest priority. And if it's not Christ, then repent and recommit to pursuing your relationship with Jesus above everything else. Listen, I know, because it's the world we live in, that wealth and success seem to be the measure of what really matters. But it's just an illusion. It's not reality. The reality is that our life on earth is temporary, fades away quickly. Eternity is coming, and things are not as they seem. The most important thing about us is whether we know Jesus Christ and whether we're growing in our relationship with him. So church, let's reorient our thinking to think in that way. Let's reorient our lives to live in that way too. Let's pursue Jesus above everything else because he is the treasure of greatest value. Let's pray. God, thank you for the reminder here in James chapter 1 that the most important thing about us is not our material status or our wealth, our possessions, for that matter, our worldly accomplishments. The most important thing about us is whether we know you. And God, we pray that we would think in that way, that we would flip our thinking upside down, that if we are a lowly brother or sister, that we would boast in our exalted state. That if we're a brother or sister with more means, that we would boast in our humiliation, recognizing that every good thing we have comes from you. God, we pray that we would see ourselves correctly through the lens of Scripture. We pray that we would see ourselves correctly through your perspective, that we would understand our relationship with you is the most important thing about us. Help us to live that way, Help us to think that way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.